got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be at the very beginning of the Bible this morning, talking about what it is that God has called us to. We've been doing that for the last few weeks, and we're going to finish that up this week in preparation for next week and celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we want to talk today about being called to a mission. And uh, it's intentional that I didn't say called to missions, because missions implies uh, various acts. What I want us to understand today is that when we accept the Lord, when we give our lives to Him, then we become a part of the grand mission, the grand story, the overall essence of what God is doing on this planet. And so we are part of a major movement. Um, it's almost as if when we accept the call of the Lord, we are, uh, anybody seen Mission Impossible? You know, your mission if you choose to accept it, right? It's almost like when we are called, if we're given a Mission Impossible kind of moment of this is your mission if you choose to accept it, is to be a part of the grand mission that God has for us. Now, over the last four weeks, we've talked about different things that God is calling us to do when he calls us to follow him. For instance, He calls us to worship Him. He calls us to grow in who we are, discipleship. He calls us to fellowship, to being around other believers. He calls us to help one another, to minister to one another. So He calls us to those four things. Today we're going to talk about the fifth one, which is we're called to a mission. And this is what is different about this one from the other four. This is the only one that we're going to talk about that has a time limit on it. You see, for all of eternity, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ will spend eternity worshiping Him. We will spend eternity growing in our knowledge of who He is and of who God is, because that is an inexhaustible well. We will spend all eternity spending time with one another, fellowshipping together, and we will spend eternity serving one another. Now, that's just part of what we'll be doing. But those four things will be happening for all eternity. This calling has a time limit. You've ever seen one of those shows where somebody diffuses a bomb, right? They never diffuse it with two and a half minutes left, right? They diffuse it when? last possible second, right? They cut the red wire, the blue wire, the green wire, the combination wires, whatever, at the last possible second. And what builds tension, what builds urgency for the viewer that's watching is watching them seeing that clock tick down. Ten, nine, eight, seven. The reality is that in many ways this mission that we're called to accomplish, there is a clock ticking, we just don't know where it is. We don't know if it's set on 20 minutes, 20 days, 20 years, 200 years, 2,000 years. But what we're going to talk about today, there is a clock that's ticking towards the end of what God is doing on this planet. And so what we're talking about today is of utmost importance and urgency. But it starts almost at the beginning of the Bible. Now, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are 
what some people called prehistory or um, before recorded history, but it's the essence of creation. And what we have to understand today as we get prepared to talk about what it means to be called to a mission is that we are being called into something that's been going on for thousands of years. In fact, the first thing that we must understand as believers, if we're going to accomplish what God has called us to accomplish, is that we have to understand the story we're a part of. We must be a people who know the story they are part of. In Genesis chapter 12, we have this understanding that uh, we, we have God about to call Abram. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it, that's what it tells us. It says, The Lord has said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Now what's going on here is in the first 11 chapters of the book, you have creation in all its splendor, and God saying that it was very good, that it was great, that it was perfect. What you have in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis is God working in this place for the first time, creating a land, creating a place, creating an environment, creating a universe in which we would be able to dwell. And as he creates that place, as he creates that universe, as he creates this perfect place, he then sets human beings in the midst of it and gives them the option of whether they're going to follow him or not. Human beings, those first two, like all of the rest of us, chose to go their own way. And as a result, in Genesis chapter 3, we have this thing called the fall. And in the fall, what happens is sin enters the world, and it affects every one of us every day in major ways. It affects us physically. Because of sin, because of the fall, our bodies are decaying to the point that death will come. It just happens. The older I get, the more aware I become of the decaying of my body. And it's a daily reminder. It's not a every few years reminder. It's a daily reminder. Intellectually, we now have gone to the place where it's no longer trying to just figure out the things of God. We spend a lot of intellectual time trying to figure out how to explain ourselves and what we've done. Relationally, every day you deal with the consequences of sin. When you deal with someone and and you're not real sure of their motives or you question what they've done or you say something you know may hurt someone else, but you say it anyways. Uh, Relationships are broken on a daily basis. Relationships have issues on a daily basis. Marriages fall apart. Friendships fall apart. Parents and children's relationship falls apart. And that's all as a result of sin. And then spiritually, we have been distanced from the Lord. And so in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you have this major setting that creation has happened, that the fall comes. But almost immediately after the fall, God begins to predict this redemption story that's going to happen. And so when you have creation and then you have the fall, you have just this, this glimpse of it in the first 11 chapters. But in Genesis chapter 12, you have the beginning of the grand narrative, the great story. And when it says in chapter 12, verse 1, that the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. What is happening there is literally God is saying to Abram, I am going to take you, an individual, and I'm going to change history through your family. Now remember, he's saying this to an older couple who has no children. And he says, I'm going to change everything that's happening. And so for the rest of the Bible... From Genesis chapter 12 
to the end is the story of God redeeming His creation. We start in Genesis 1 with a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. It gets marred. It gets um, disrupted by our sin. But we end the book of Revelation with a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. Everything in between is the redemption story. And so you move from Abram, who is called by the Lord, to be a person that will enact this. You move to um, the Exodus, where God's children are rescued from their slavery. You move to the nation of Israel, who don't necessarily do a good job, but are God's chosen people to show the world who they are and what God is about. You move to the incarnation, where God decides in a final act that I'm not going to have people just... Do this for me. I'm going to come down myself. I'm going to live a perfect life. I'm going to teach them what it means to follow me. I'm going to show them the power that is available to them. And then you see him lay down his life in an act of sacrifice on the cross. Three days later, Jesus rises again from the grave. He talks to his disciples and he commissions them to take the message into the world. He sends the Holy Spirit to come. And in the book of Acts, we see the beginning of God's people from every race, nation, creed, color, begin to follow Jesus in accord. One thing, unity, telling others about him. And before long, it is spreading like wildfire throughout the known world. Until today, we have about a billion people worldwide that profess the name of Jesus. And we are a part of that story. Now, here's why that's important. Our world tries to sell you on the fact that the only story that's important is the story you want to create. What do you want your life to be about? What do you want your job to be about? What do you want your family to be about? You figure all that out, and then you being the most perfect you you can be is the best life possible. The problem with that is that it is awfully self-centered and short-sighted. I read a book the other day that talked about the most boring life in the world is the self-centered life. And what they say is that in a self-centered life, what you try to do is to get everybody to revolve around you, which means you stay completely stationary and do absolutely nothing. But what God intends is a vibrant, exciting life. And see, here's where this grand story is important. If my worldview in my life was all about me and Susan and the kids. It would be a very contained life. By understanding my part in the story, what I realize is I am a part of the greatest story that has ever been written and it is currently still going on. My life is a part of God's grand design. More important than the question, what is God's plan for my life, is figuring out what is God's plan and me figuring out how to get involved with that. So Abram has this call from the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, leave your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And the first thing that Abram has to decide is, am I going to do what God has asked me to do? 
And if we are going to be people that are on a mission with God, you see, his mission is to take a group of people who have rebelled against him, who have run from him, who have begun to destroy the very creation that he created. His goal, his mission in life is to bring them back into relationship with him. It is to bring him back into relationship with the God that created them and to restore them to the beauty and the splendor of who they are and the world around them to the world that it's supposed to be. What we have to do, secondly, is we must embrace our role. We must be a people that embrace our role in the story. God says to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's house, and go to the land I will show you. What he basically has given Abram the option is whether or not he is going to follow what the Lord wants him to do or whether he's going to continue down the path of being ordinary. There are a lot, a lot of people who are members of congregations, who are people who claim the name of Jesus, who are people who say they are followers of His, that never take the step to embrace their role in the grand plan of God. And here's the thing. If you want to do that, you will end up living an ordinary, ho-hum kind of life. But you will never experience the sheer joy and excitement of following the Lord, no matter what it means. Here's what you've been called to. It's a long sentence. We're going to look at it uh, today. We have been called into a relationship with the living God that will transform our lives so that we might be effective representatives of Him through word and action to all nations. We have been called into a relationship with the living God that will transform our lives so that we might be effective representatives of Him through word and action to all nations. You see, when I think we as Baptists we as church people have made this idea of following Jesus not as exciting or as important as it really is. And so we have people that walk an aisle on a Sunday morning. They tell people, hey, I'm, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to be a part of this church. We're like, that's exciting. Everybody claps for them. They come by and shake their hands. They're excited about it. Everything's good. But we never let them in on the fact that what you have just said yes to is a relationship with a living God that's going to transform your life to the point that you're going to be His representative on earth and what you do and what you say so that you can bring the glory of God to all nations. Because that's what he just says to Abram. Verse 2. Notice the personal nature of this. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The idea here is the first thing that God wants us to understand is that we have been called into a relationship with the living God. You have been called into a one-on-one personal relationship with the God of the universe. We say that so much that we don't understand the impact of what we're saying. You ever met anybody important? You ever met anybody that's in the world's eye important? 
Somebody tell me. Somebody, who have you met? Nancy, I see your hand back there. Kay Arthur in the Christian service. That's a big, big name. Doc Severinsen for all the young people. That's Johnny Carson's uh, band leader on the Tonight Show before Jay Leno, before Conan O'Brien, before Jay Leno years ago. Garth Brooks. There you go. I like Garth. He wears a good microphone, right? What? Amy Grant. Who's somebody you want to meet? If you if you had your choice, you can meet anybody in the world. Who would you be? I mean, living now. This isn't one of those questions. Who you want to have dinner with, living or dead? I mean, who would you want to meet? Justin Bieber. There we go. John Wayne. James Franco. There you go. Now here's the thing. Can you imagine if you got a call? Um, and you were going to get to meet whoever it is out there that you would love to meet. All right? Some actor, movie star, Bible study teacher. You're going to get one-on-one time with them. They've blocked off an hour of their schedule. You're going to have lunch. It's going to be in a private area. You can ask them anything you want to ask. You can talk with them. You can shake their hands. You can, you know, you can have that private time with them. Can you imagine what you'd be feeling as you got ready? Wendy, as you got ready to meet that beautiful man, can you imagine what you'd be feeling at that moment? Fear? <laughs> Something, right? <laughs> Here's the point. There is a point. We're coming around to it. Everybody circle your wagons with me, all right? Quit dreaming about meeting someone now. We have been called into a one-on-one relationship with the living God. And sometimes we treat that like that's not a big deal. God comes to Abram and he says, I want you, you, to be the man and the family that I rescue creation through. Now here's the really cool thing. When you follow through the Bible, this idea of who are these people that are Abraham's descendants. For the first half of the Bible, it's pretty clear that Abraham's descendants are the nation of Israel. But when you get to the New Testament and Paul begins to speak, he says that's no longer the case. That once you accept the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you accept the gift that he has offered to you, once you accept that, you are now a descendant of Abraham. And if God called Abraham, as we just read, to bless the nations of the earth, then you are a part of that calling. We have been called into a relationship with the living God to know him, to be around him, to hear from him, to follow him. To listen to Him. To be empowered by Him. To be forgiven by Him. And if that's the case, then it will naturally, if you are living in a relationship with the living God, it is going to naturally transform your life. In Genesis 18, just a few chapters over, Abraham is sitting outside of this city. And the city is about to be destroyed. It's a little city called Sodom. 
The, the, the city was so bad that today it is still known as a wicked city. If you say something about Sodom and Gomorrah, you're talking about a wicked place. Abraham was sitting outside of it. And God says in the midst of that, as he's thinking about it, he says, Abraham, I am going to use you. I'm going to use you and your family and your children, and I'm going to instruct you in the way of the Lord so that you might be different, that your lives may be transformed, so that the world will see how good it is to follow the Lord. And as a result of that, they will understand that your lives have been transformed by me. One of the biggest issues in the life of the church today is that we are going out and proclaiming a message that our lives do not back up. We talk about the transforming power of Jesus Christ in our lives, and yet there is no transformation in our lives at all. If you are in a relationship with the living God, there ought to be natural, progressive growth in living like Him. It's going to transform our lives so that we might be effective representatives of Him through word and action. What he says to Abraham, basically, in that Genesis passage in chapter 18 and here in chapter 12 is, my goal is to create a group of people that everyone else will look at and think, man, they're doing something right. In the New Testament, Paul says that we are Christ ambassadors. Now, I am not completely schooled on the issues of political science and what ambassadors fully do. But I know this, that when an ambassador of the United States of America is in another country, when he speaks, the United States of America speaks. He is our representative there. And the idea is, when we say we are ambassadors of Christ, it means on this earth, where we are, we are God's representatives. That's the way he chose it. That's the way he planned it. He, in fact, in a couple of places, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, calls us priests. He says that we are to be people teaching God's law and that we are to be people who are bridging the gap between those that are distant from God and God himself. We are to be their priests. And the way we do that is by living the holy lives. That means not that we are perfect. It means that our lives are set apart from others. It means that our lives are different than others, that we have reserved ourselves for God. There is a a series of children's videos that have come out or started coming out recently called What's in the Bible. We've got, there there are four out now. I highly recommend it. Uh, We're using the curriculum on uh, Sunday nights with our kids and highly recommend it. They do as good of a job as I've heard of explaining what holiness is and is not on that DVD. Now, they do it with puppets, so you have to get past the puppets for a minute. But they do an unbelievable job of talking about this idea that holiness is not just being perfect, although there is this ethical requirement. The whole idea is that we are different, that there ought to be distinction between us and the world. What is tragic in many ways is that over the last 50 years, it seems that Christianity in America has tried as hard as possible to be as much like the world as we can when we're called to be weird, we're called to be different. 
And it's not just in our actions. It has to be in our words. Acts chapter 4 is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. It's um, Peter and John, and they're in front of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin comes and goes, listen, guys, y'all got to stop talking about Jesus. I mean, whatever else. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, turn over there with me to Acts chapter 4. Now, if you've got your U version, I'm sorry it's not in there. It tells a story in Acts chapter 4 that the priests and the guards came up to Peter and John where they were speaking and they were disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus. They seized Peter and because it was easy, they put him in jail. But many of you heard believed and the number of men grew about 5,000. The next day they had this whole discussion about what are we going to do with these guys? What are we going to do? And they asked Peter and John, this is what I love. It's just a part of who they are. When people begin to ask them, they don't have to think, well, is this an opportunity for me to tell them about Jesus? How would I phrase this about Jesus? Is this an opportunity for me to tell them or should I wait? Is this the right time? They're probably not going to listen, so I don't need to say it. They just, because of what's happening in their lives, they just burst out and start talking about Jesus. Verse 8, 9, and 10. They, they talk about this cripple that they had healed. And he says, you know this. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that he stands before you healed. Now, you have to realize something. This is a few weeks after this same group of people had handed Jesus over to be crucified. Just a few weeks. And these guys know by saying this, they are putting their own lives on the line. Because they made up charges to kill Jesus. You realize that, right? I mean, Jesus wasn't killed for anything that was actually there. And so these guys are perfectly capable of making up some charges against Peter and John and having them put to death. And not only does Peter and John say, oh, it is the power of God that does this. No, they say, they look them in the eye. It is by the name of Jesus Christ, in case you forgot which one, is the one from Nazareth, in case you forgot which one that is, he's the one you crucified. Oh, in case you forgot, he's also the one that got raised from the dead. And then they say in verse 12, because salvation is found in no other name. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, astonished, took note, these men have been with Jesus. But since they could see the men who had been healed standing with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw. And they said, what are we going to do with them? And everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle. But to stop this from spreading, we must warn these men to speak no longer. They called them in again, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And I love what Peter and John say. They don't say, oh, you okay. We'll, we'll abide. We'll leave. Verse 19. Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. There's a little side note that I love in verse 21. They've threatened them with death. And in verse 21 they say, after further threats they let them go. Well, how much more do you threaten them besides death? Here's the thing. They had a personal relationship with the living God that transformed their lives to the point that in everything they said and everything they did, they were bearing witness to who Jesus was and is. That's what happens in our lives. It's just a flow out of who we are. And here's the last part. Through word and action to all nations. 
People, when they talk about going to all nations, they often go to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. That's a great place to go. Be my witnesses, and even in um, Matthew 28, where you're going to go go make disciples of all nations. In Acts 1:8, where he says, "You're going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, or all nations." But that description goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. When Abram is told, you will be a blessing to all nations. When Solomon dedicates the temple, he prays, Lord, don't only hear our prayers, but I know your desire is that when other people from other nations come, that you'll hear their prayer. When the exodus happens, Moses goes to the Lord and says, I know your heart, Lord, and I pray that you would continue to protect us, not just for us, but for your namesake among the nations. In the book of Psalms, there is this overriding worship sense. It is their songbook. And over and over again, they say, and we're going to take your message to the nations. In the book of Jeremiah, he talks about it going to the nations. In the book of Isaiah, he prophesies that it will go to the nations. The idea is that the grand plan of God is not about America or Goodlettsville, or you. It's about the nations. And that we are to be about God's plan. Even when you get to the book of Revelation, and you have them gathered around the throne, it says they're gathered around the throne, and it says, I saw them from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so the question is, are you doing your part? Are you somebody that has accepted the call into a relationship with the living God that transforms your life so that you're an effective representative in word and action to all nations. Is that who you are? Now, all nations can start right here, but I believe everybody ought to have some part where they're giving, praying, and going to all nations.